500 vehicles to sell, 500 ways to save. One month only at Build Penny Toyota during Mega Memorial Month. Now through May 31st. That means mega deals on your favorite Toyota models from Alabama's number one volume Toyota dealer. And don't forget, every new vehicle comes with our 10-year unlimited warranty. Plus, enjoy the rest of our awesome Penny perks. Visit BuildPennyToyota.com during Mega Memorial Month. Number one based on 2018 total new Toyota retail sales in Alabama for Southeast Toyota distributors. Warranty valid through 10th year of ownership on new vehicles only. See dealer for details. Shut up and sit down. Headset today, that's why there was absolutely no warning of any kind for the show. I wasn't sure I would actually get to um, be on the air tonight because my headset came today and I didn't know if it would be charged or if it would work. Because you know, you never know what you're going to get when you order technology through the internet. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So it was, it arrived, it was not DOA. It, uh, it came through, it charged, it It even, like, married itself to my home phone system without any problems. I, I don't even know. It, it isn't often that happens to me. <clears throat> Last time we were on the air, I was on the air, we talked about um, characters and how they're built and how when you create a character <clears throat> that is... Uh, fully realized in your mind, it's easier to put that character on paper or on computer screen. It, uh, it's, um, ever how you want to do it. I, uh, I actually used to write in notebooks when I was very young, and then when I was in my teen, early teens, tweens, I asked for a typewriter, and my mom bought me one, and, um, I started to type, and I still wrote on paper as well. Uh, I took typing classes, and, um, uh, keyboarding in high school, but before that, I uh, didn't have many, I, I didn't have a lot of keyboarding skills, and it was very frustrating on the typewriter. I mean, I wanted to do it because it was this writerly image, you know, to write on a typewriter. It was very iconic to me to, to do that, but I didn't have the uh, physical skills to do it with the kind of speed that um, I was actually writing at. So it was faster to write on paper. Now. Um, I can type anywhere from 180 to 215 words a minute if I'm in a you know in a groove. Um, if I'm copying something, it's it, it, it's easily that high. But if I'm writing, it can be you know 150 to 15, just depending on how how things are flowing. And uh, there's no way I could have that kind of pro- um, productivity on paper because I write slow and I write big. I'm, I'm one of those women who has that big, loopy handwriting. It's kind of ridiculous. Uh, I hated college rule paper. I hated it because I, my letters were always bigger than the whole line, and it was even like my small, like not capital letters, were bigger than the whole line. And so it was really um, irritating when I had to use college rule. Uh, and... Um, kind of feel less than adult not to be able to use college or old. Does that make any sense? Probably not. Anyways, I uh, 
I wrote on paper for a very long time, and then I turned to uh, uh, computers, and my uncle gave me my first computer. I was 14 or 15, and <laughs> it was horrible. It had a TV, actually, from Monterey, old TV, and um, it used cassette tapes. I'm dating myself. It used cassette tapes instead of even that big, giant, floppy disk thing that we had, like, in the late 80s. So... I uh, went from that, and then in school, we had this person donate computers, so we all got a computer class. This was, I was in the fourth or fifth grade, I guess, and they had floppy disk drives. And so we went, you know, from, I went from that to that, and um, I didn't write at school, obviously, and um, I wasn't really even writing that much on the computer or typewriter at that point. Um, yeah, somewhere in that area. And I... Uh, I didn't actually get very productive until after my typewriting class. I spent most of my computer time in elementary school and junior high playing the Oregon Trail. For those of you who don't know what the Oregon Trail is, I feel sorry for you. You should totally look it up. Maybe you can find the sim online. I don't know. It's fantastic. They should put the Oregon Trail on Facebook. I would play it four or five hours a day. I often died of dysentery on Oregon Trail, and my wagon always broke down, yes, and I had a hard time shooting the deer, because it felt wrong. I, I hated the hunting part. Uh, it's just, if you haven't played Oregon Trail, you're, you're, you're missing out, and you need to look it up online, see if you can't find a way to play it. And um, Lady Holder has just posted an Oregon Trail link in the chat room, so if you go to www.oregontrail.com, um, I think you'll be able to find it. Her link's a little bit bigger, but that's the main domain. Um, and, yeah, so that was like my first computer experience, the Oregon Trail. And then there wasn't a mouse. There was just the keyboard, and you had to learn all the, sh the shortcuts, and you had to fire your weapon with the space bar. It was great. It was fantastic. I uh, also, on my home computer that my uncle gave me, I had this Buck Rogers game. And it was terrible. It was like, I don't know, Atari Defenders. I had an Atari as well. I had a Sega. I had the first Nintendo. I had that Nintendo where you had to blow on it to get it to work. Yeah, I totally had that Nintendo. If you don't know what that means, I feel sorry for you, because then you didn't get to play Zelda, the gold one, or um, the original Mario, um, Mario Brothers in its epic and frustrating format, or Duck Hunt and you didn't get to hit your sibling or cousin with the duck hunt gun because you lost, you know. So, so so you're totally missing out if you didn't have a Nintendo in the early, late 80s, early 90s, whenever that was. I uh, So anyway, <laughs> that has like totally nothing to do with our topic, right? I just went off on a little tangent. I uh, So technology shaped me as a writer. It changed my process. It changed how I... Um, developed characters and how I built profiles and how I built my plot. And eventually, as the Internet grew from what it was um, to what it is today, that also influenced my process when it comes to character development and plot development and world building. Because I went from having to go to the library to look up all these things to being able to go on the Internet and doing these Google searches and building documents and collecting links. So when I was ready to put all my stuff into my organizational software, and I use Microsoft OneNote. I also have Scrivener. Um, I like Scrivener, too, but I like OneNote 
uh, OneNote more, and that's just because I've been using OneNote for a very long time, and it's just a, um, it's just it's just what I'm used to using is all. So it's it's not any different or better, I don't think. Well, it's different. Obviously, it's different. It's two different products, but they I think they tend to do basically the same things. I like OneNote because I can paste vi- um, uh, videos and uh, pictures and. All that stuff, but you can use Microsoft Word. You can use Google Docs. I mean, whatever you use, make it comfortable for you and make it work for you, because that's just the best that you can do um, as far as that goes. You don't want to complicate your physical process, how you create and how um, data, how you put the data together, because that it creates a level of procrastination that you're probably not even aware of until you're deep in it. So don't lose yourself in the how-to, because it will slow you down. So decide how you're going to do it, process, and it will help you, it will smooth you out, is is what I'm getting at. So when we talked about building characters, we talked about their history and their past experiences and their current experiences and their relationships with other people. Characters also have a relationship with their environment. I think one of the reasons why um, fan fiction is so popular and for young writers is because you don't have to do a lot of world building unless you want to because somebody else has already done that for you. The biggest example of that, of course, would be Harry Potter. Um, when you go into Harry Potter, unlike J.K. Rowling, who had to spend a lot of time showing us the world that that she had created, which is why it's not as in-depth as we would like as fans, even though we've had seven books, eight books, if you count those, that Fantastic Beast one, maybe more. There could be another one. At any rate, when you put all that together, you're left with um, a lot of questions. But what you have to keep in mind is that when she built it, there was nothing. And so everything you build on Harry Potter, you're building on her foundation. And without her foundation, you would have to spend a lot of resources putting that together for yourself and your reader. So your reader already has this huge foundation coming into your story if you're writing Harry Potter or if you're writing Stargate. And all that work has been done for you. And a lot of writers get bitchy about uh, the source material. They uh, talk trash about it. Oh, she didn't do this. She didn't do that. I can't believe she didn't mention this. You know, frankly, the Harry Potter books are huge. They are huge. The last one's 200K. The average commercial novel is 75 to 80,000 words. I need you to keep that in mind. So the last Harry Potter novel was basically three average novels put together. And it was as big. And the, the last four or five were huge huge books she crammed as much as she could into the creation of the Harry Potter world without bogging the reader down with exposition because you don't want to do that you don't want to spend three or four hundred chapter words every time you open a scene building so she built Yes, in some ways a very simplistic world. She threw magic into a situation, and she gave us these interesting characters, and it was a huge endeavor for her. So when you look at the books and you see the faults, you need to keep in mind that the only reason 
you see the faults is because of everything else she's already done. Uh, so, And that's true of any fandom. When you get into Stargate, Stargate has a huge, huge amount of world building in it. And, and, and that's if you don't count the movie or the books, which are totally different than the TV series. Not totally different, but completely different. Um, it's... It's interesting to see the, the difference between the movie and the TV show. But when you're building your own world and you have nothing to stand on when you start, you have to build a very strong foundation. If you don't, your story will fall apart. Your characters, no matter how well drawn, your plot, no matter how tight and sure, cannot function if you don't have a foundation for your world. If you're writing in established reality, there's a lot of world building already done for you, and your reader can make assumptions about the color of the sky and um, that how many hours are in a day because you're writing in a contemporary setting. And even if you create a little town for yourself or for your characters, you're still set in a reality. But if you write science fiction or high fantasy, or even you know fantasy or high fantasy, uh, if you do that, you're going to have to build a very strong foundation on which your characters will stand. Because if you don't, it will all fall to pieces and it will be ugly. It will be really ugly. <laughs> and you know, you, in order to bring your reader into your book, you have to make them believe in you, believe in your characters, and believe in your world. The difference between fantasy and high fantasy. Fantasy novels, say, okay, Percy Jackson um, novels, they're fantasy. Uh, Harry Potter is fantasy. Uh, Lord of the Rings is high fantasy. There's a, there's a, for me, there's the difference. Uh, did you know that um, Tolkien created an entire um, language? Lord of the Rings? Uh, Narnia is probably on the cusp between, I would say, I would consider regular fantasy and high fantasy. Uh, Lady Holder's telling me he created several languages for um, Lord of the Rings. It, uh, it's just, there's a difference. Like, when you look at Okay, for instance, when you look at science fiction, there are several kinds of uh, science fiction that you can fall on. There's reality-based science fiction like, um, I don't know, that movie Gravity or, or uh, Apollo 13, those movies, you know, those space movies that are based where they come on Earth. And then you have what you would consider uh, high highly developed, highly detailed science fiction like um, what you would get from Asimov or uh, what's his name? My husband loves him. Oh, my God. My husband my husband likes the uh, really uh, science-oriented science fiction. Uh, he likes to read uh, Asimov. Uh, I forget that guy's name. Oh, my God. Uh <clears throat> Anyways, he likes to read that stuff, whereas I like to read uh, 
like stuff like Star Wars and Star Trek, which you can't consider high-level science fiction. I cut my teeth on Heinlein. Uh, my husband wouldn't read Orson Scott Card if his life depended on it. He's got problems with that, issues. Anyway, <clears throat> although he does, and this is terrible, this is so terrible, and it's like his worst fault as a reader. He actually enjoyed Battlefield Earth. I don't even know what to say. I don't even know. He has it on audiobook. Sometimes he listens to it, and it takes months. It takes months because it is a huge-ass book, and it's like, I don't know, 15, 20 hours of audiobook. It's ridiculous. I hate it. I hate Battlefield Earth. I hated it before it was ever a stupid movie, and it was a stupid movie. I mean, even my husband agrees it. Anyways, when you... When you create a world, you you have to make some decisions at the start. Uh, what kind of world is it going to be? Um, what's your setting going to be? What's the level of technology your characters are going to be exposed to? What are the external conflicts and motivations that are going to drive your character that are based on the world? that you've put your character in. So you set your character down on a foundation of truth. You write down the things that are true about the world you want to build. And you stay honest to that truth. And you don't violate those truths. Because if you do, you're creating a situation where your reader will stop trusting you. So if you say in the very first paragraph of your story, that the sky is purple. The sky will be purple throughout your entire story, unless there's a very damn good reason it stops being purple. You have to make your rules and obey your rules. They're your rules. Make them what you want them to be, but be consistent. If you're not consistent, your story will fall apart. And that's true of character building, that's true of your plot, that's true of world building. Now, on the show, I, uh, on, on the show listing on Blog Talk, I did some uh, links for you guys. There are uh, six links, one's to a book on Amazon, it's my favorite book, it's called Plot and Structure. I pick that book because, uh, and there's another book um, out there that's actually really good, and it's by Orson Scott Card, but I don't actually own a copy of that book anymore because his politics are so horrible that I took it to the used bookstore and sold it because I didn't want it in my house. He's a terrible person. He's terrible. He's a decent writer, and uh, his writing book is actually very good, but he's so terrible as a person that I didn't want his work in my house in any way. So I took it to the used bookstore and sold it for 45 cents. I don't know. Ever how much they gave me. I bought a filthy Harlequin with the results of that credit. Anyway, um, you like when you're doing characters, when you're building your world and you're building your plot, you can go online and you can find these documents and um, worksheets that will guide you through that process. And if you, as you go along, as you create these different worlds, you're going to be able to 
pick and choose the parts that work for you, just like when you're building a character profile. So if you have a, a world like Stargate already developed for you and you're writing fan fiction, you, there are already some truths about Stargate that you know. You know, even though their science is not particularly real, realistic, you know these girls already because you, because you're in the fandom, you watch the shows, you watch those movies, you, um, you read other people's fan fiction, and, and you're exposed to fanon, and you develop a headcanon. And when you have a headcanon, you, it, it tends to come across in all the fan fiction that you write. Uh, I have a headcanon for um, Stargate, and it, and also I'm developing a, a headcanon for Harry Potter. And once that happens, it's like all of my stories are going to be an AU of the original story that I wrote. I mean, and that's just the way it's going to be. I, um, that's what I tend to enjoy doing. Um, how does it bind in Stargate? When I started Ties That Bind, I actually had two um, canons to work with. I had the original canon that Zance built on, and then I had Zance World. And I uh, I started writing it as like a, just this, I don't know, just just to see where it would go. And I didn't have a lot of uh, thought into what was going to happen until that first sex scene, and I realized that I needed to do world building of my own because I was developing headcanon for how this would work and why this would work. And Rodney's character is actually the catalyst for the pleasure houses that I developed for Ties That Bind because he's an educated man in canon and he was a very educated man in Zant's um, canon when she wrote um, The Doctor and General Shepard and Coming Home. Um, I knew that about Rodney and I thought to myself, okay, if he's someone who would educate himself or over-educate himself, to be perfectly honest, and this is a world that's always had dynamic, um, and from personal experience, I do know that in the BDSM community, there are people who um, pride themselves on teaching others how to approach their dynamic and, and how to master themselves, um, either as a submissive, as a dom, I knew a um, a man in college who <laughs> was very good at helping me out with that, and so in a lot of ways he might have been a catalyst as well for this for the uh, creation of probably even Gerard. To be perfectly honest, he was he was very dominant and very sexual, and um, Gerard is very dominant and very sexual in Ice the Bind, and it. Uh, and those experiences that you have, they're going to show up in your writing whether you want them to. You know, even if it's not on purpose, it's something that's because you are a summation of your experiences, and as a writer, your experiences are always going to influence what you write, the way you write, and the end result of your writing. And you can't control that. It's, it's just it's like trying to control the wind. You you just can't do it. It. But what you can do is <laughs> go back through your work after the fact and go, oh, you know what, we could change his name because I don't need that asshole emailing me. <laughs> you know, so you 
you can edit yourself after the fact. You can sh- shift things around so it doesn't look so obvious. But there are going to be times when your own experiences are going to heavily influence your plot and your characters and, and, and even your world building. Especially true um, for, for fan fiction because when I write fan fiction, I tend to uh, write to entertain and please myself. So I don't write, as a rule, I, I, I don't write death fic. I, I don't write... Ha- um, Bad endings. I don't. I don't believe in um, breakup fic. I know what happens to other people, but I'm not going to be writing it. <laughs> I don't like death fic as a rule. There are a few exceptions um, that, that that come to mind in fandom. I don't like um, heavy angst. I don't read torture. I don't read rape or non-con or dubious consent or ever how they want to label it because of, because it's all rape to me. I. Uh, don't particularly like to read uh, severe amounts of homophobia or sexism or you know I just because when I turn to fan fiction I want to be entertained and I want my mood to be elevated and I don't like to read that torture porn I I just don't I mean because I don't anyways if that's your thing that's fine I don't understand it but I I sort of accept it so anyway so when you're building your world. You make decisions about your world the same way you would your characters because you need your world to work for you. Um, and your and your world, if especially if you're building a, a world in a fantasy or a science fiction setting, is going to be a character within itself. So you need to know the history of your world. You need to know the politics of your world. You need to know the legal in system of your world. You need to know how order is maintained, maintained. If there's a military, is military service required? If Is there a caste system, which sometimes happens in science fiction, especially in fantasy or, or, or historical fiction? Where is your character going to be in these various systems? Legal, political, social. Is there social unrest, what are the major issues in your world? Is racism an issue? Is homophobia an issue? Is misogyny an issue? Who is elevated in your society? Who is subjugated in your society? All of these things are important to know, even if you don't actually... It's the same with your characters. You need to... Know the world you're putting your characters into and how that world's going to impact them because it matters. What's the environment of your world like? Is it cold? Is it hot? Is it rainy? Are they in a jungle? Are they in a desert? Are they going to be in various locations? Are they in a city or are they in the country? Is it is it very urban? How is technology influencing your world? How is technology influencing your characters? All these things matter so much, and especially like when you're doing fantasy. If you're saying, if, if, if you're writing about vampires or werewolves, uh, you have to determine the rules of a vampire. Can they be out in the sun? And your vampires better not ever fucking sparkle. Ever, no sparkling, no vampire sparkling is allowed in Minionville. Ever. 
bitches. Keep it up. Write it down. Put it down. No sparkling. Okay. Sorry. I had a little tangent. So you pick out you pick out the elements of your of your the the fantasy elements of your thing. You know, your vampire can can he be out in the sun? Uh, is he what kills your vampire? Uh, how do werewolves work? What kind of transition do they make? This is world building. You might think this is character development, but it's not. Because anything that affects, has impact on all of your characters is not character development. It's world building. So you can't just have one vampire who can be out at day unless you're writing about Blade, which is an interesting fandom. But when you build your world, you establish facts and truths about the people and entities in your world, and they have to be across the board. Then you create situations like, in that book Divergent, where everybody is almost the same, and then there's that group of people who are not quite the same, and they are a, uh, a threat to the stability of the society that, that, that they live in, and that's a plot point. It's a big plot point. So when you turn your character and make them abnormal from the norm you establish, that becomes a plot point. And it, and, and in order to do that, you have to have a very strong foundation for the rest of your work. Because you have to establish it first. And then you can make your character stand out in a way that will entertain and interest the reader. So you build your world. You establish your rules. Write them down. Don't count on your ability to remember them. I have a great memory. I uh, always have. I can pretty much remember them. I mean, it's not photographic by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I knew a boy in college who, who had a photographic memory, though. It was ridiculous. He remembered everything from, like, seven or eight months old. Literally everything. From the soap operas his mother watched... The paper he wrote the day before I spoke to him. I mean, just everything. There was, there was no relief, really. He said the only relief he ever got was sleep, and even then, that was iffy. Um, anyways, don't count on yourself to remember. So write it down. It's the same way you would your character details because you need consistency. So learn your rules, figure out your rules, write all your rules down for your world. It builds your foundation and it creates an honesty in your project that will allow you to write a really great story. Because if you're not standing on two feet, you're hopping around and you're not paying attention to what you're doing, your, your story's going to fall apart not going to be believable or interesting, um, which happens to a lot of writers published. It happens. So, once you've developed your world, you've got your rules, you know your technology, how your technology is going to impact your characters, is it helpful or is it a hindrance? Once you've learned all these things about your world, created these things, and you've written them all down, and you've got your world-building document, and if you go to the links, you can, um, there are several do's and don'ts. You know, 
things you don't want to do for world building and things that you do want to do for world building. One of the articles that I have highlighted is Seven Deadly Sins of World Building. And uh, it's an interesting article. And it makes you think about the basics of the world we currently live in and how you put those basics into a fictional world that you want to create. Because it's important to know that not everybody can be the king. Excuse me. Yeah, that that was me sneezing. Sorry. Yeah, I know it sounds ridiculous. So, once you've uh, once you've built your world, you can <laughs> you can start building your plot. I know, I, I have a little mouse sneeze. That's what somebody told me once. It's a little mouse sneeze. Uh, so, sorry. Maybe it won't happen again. Who knows? Anyways, so you've built your world. You know the laws of your world. You know how technology works in your world. You know where the trash goes and and <clears throat> what's going to happen. Um, you know the basic history of your world. One of the most interesting questions I ever got about ties that bind was people ask me questions about the various world wars and like Victorian England and, and how that would have worked out since she was such a terrible prude and um, just stuff like that. It's really interesting to think about that kind of thing. And I actually have an entire like uh, composition notebook dedicated to historical events that um, never came up in ties that bind, but I addressed for my own. Um, Amusement, and uh, so it's just you know, all those things come into play, like when were pleasure houses established? Um, the fact that matter, you know, the conservative movements and, and ties that bind, um, and, and the myths of slavery, and homosexuality, and uh, bisexuality, and asexuality—all of these things uh, are part of world building. They're not part of character development. <clears throat> you have to consider how someone who is asexual or someone who is non-dynamic would work in um, the ties that bind universe, where everybody, the, where the vast majority of people have a dynamic and they're a very sexual culture, and um, public sex is an entertainment. And so, when sex and dominance and submission are entertainment, and then you have someone who has no interest whatsoever in being sexual with another human being, they stand out, and you have to figure out how they're going to be um, viewed in your world. In Coming Home, written by Xanth, um, asexuality was seen as um, deviant, practically. Uh, it was something that wasn't discussed, and uh, just wasn't. And um, I think Radic Zelenka was asexual in, in, in that story. So it was interesting to see that. And when I approached it in my own, I took a different, I turned it a little bit, mostly for, for, a, couple, for a couple of reasons. One, because I wanted to do something different than what Zance did, so I didn't want to, you know, just steal all of her world building while I was taking her idea. With, with her permission, I had her permission, I did. Well, I had her permission when I posted it. I wrote it without permission. I never had Indian 
I never intended to post it on, online, to be perfectly honest. So when I made that decision to do that, I immediately emailed Dance and said, hey, I did this. Do you mind if I put it online? She agreed, and she gave me that big warning, which we've discussed before. So when you talk about... Um, Eleni in the chat room says Zelenka was monosexual and non-dynamic, and that might be true. I don't really remember. I know he was different. He stood out in the story as different from everybody else. Um, and that it was um, deviant, somehow deviant and almost shameful. And so when I approached um, monosexuality, and being non-dynamic and being asexual, I did a couple of things. Um, John is monosexual in, in ties that bind. He has no interest in women. Um, he's been with women, but they don't interest him in dynamic or um, even just for pure sex. They don't interest him at all. Uh, and so I made that decision to make him mon- monosexual because um, I thought it would be interesting to see him interact and not to really keep it a secret it's an acknowledgement people noticed that he's monosexual it's it's not particularly a secret since he fucked all the male submissives on the city in the military and and didn't touch the women um they're aware (laughs) that he that he's um presenting himself as monosexual even if he never outright says it uh and what I did do in Ties That Bind, and I'm not sure how I feel about it after the fact, but I put asexuality and non, non-dynamic together in, in Ties That Bind um, as to mean that they mean the same thing, that, that someone who is asexual is non-dynamic and someone who is non-dynamic is asexual. I, it wasn't a conscious decision that I made. It just came out in the writing and then um, it was there, and it was already online, and it was done, and I just left it there, and I didn't really talk about it anymore after I did it because I really wasn't comfortable with what I did. I, I think they probably should be separate, but they're not, and so and, and that's established in ties that bind, and so it's you know it it's it's done, and so that's the situation that I let develop without thinking about it. So um, to learn from my mistakes. <laughs> Be very sure of yourself before you put something online and it becomes something that readers expect to see. Um, it's established. You can't undo it. Um, it could actually become a, uh, a plot hole. Instead of a pot hole, it'd be a plot hole if you, um, if you fuck it up. So um, once you've done it, you're stuck with it. Otherwise, you create situations where you're not being honest to your story or honest to yourself. Um, and that's not good. It... Um, it create situations where your readers won't trust you. I do have a cell phone, Senna. (laughs) But if I was a pothole, I would not. I love that commercial. It cracks me up. Anyways, so what I was talking about, world building and plot development and and how they um, intertwine with character development. And once you've created your rules, like I did for Ties That Bind, and you're kind of hemmed into them, and you're and you're stuck with them. So be sure of, of what you want. Be sure that you want to create a society where, say, for instance, you decide that you're 
world is a police state. Then your hero does something terrible and illegal. And he has to deal with the ramifications of the world that you built. If you don't make him deal with the ramifications of the world you built, you create a situation where your reader won't trust the world that you've built, and they won't trust you. You can always go back. And here's what you need to remember um, when you're writing in your rough draft. It's not concrete. and You're not writing in gold. You're not writing in a pen dipped in solid gold, I promise. Nobody ever has. And if they have, they're stupid. Okay. <clears throat> so that's what it is. You build your world. You create your rules, and you function in that world, and you do your plot, and you write your story, and then you're, you're done. You're finished with it. Then you can go back, and you can play as long as you keep it consistent. And no one else has seen it but you. <laughs> Or your or your beta readers, I mean, you'd not believe some of the changes that happen in a story between rough draft and final draft. On my website, when I'm when I'm writing fan fiction, there is a uh, the the biggest example would be um, Enemy No Enemy Within, which is my first book in the Lantern Legacy, um, and I've written all those books. I need to I need, I need to do something about that. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to fix that. And the first story was only like 25 or 30k. And then by the time it came out of beta, nine months later, it was it was double the size and totally different from what I originally wrote. And that's okay. As long as that when you go into a project, you own it. You own the rules. You own your characters. You don't let your characters... Okay. Okay. You need to own it. Nothing happens in your story without your permission. You can go back and change it. If in Chapter 6 of your 10-chapter story, you decide to change one of the rules in your world, like a note, write it down. When you finish your rough draft, wait till you're finished. Then you go back and to each scene, each chapter of your story, you weave that new rule for your world into your story in a way that is organic as possible so it doesn't seem injected. The last thing you want to do is put a change into your story that looks like it's out of place. Did you ever watch that movie Pulp Fiction? I recommend it. It's t- it's told out of order. And so one of the things that we did in um, in college, I, I took a writing class, and we watched Pulp Fiction, and we took we we took the scenes, wrote them down in index cards, and then put them in order to what they should be, versus how we saw it on screen. And it was an interesting movie to do that with because it was told out of order through the movie. And then when you put it in order, you see a um, a story take place that's absolutely horrific. It is horrific. It is horrific in any 
version. It's it's a great story. It's it's very interesting, and the characters are very dynamic, and it sticks with you. And what I learned about Pulp Fiction is either people love it or they hate it, and there appears to be no in-between. Um, and so that and that's what great storytelling is. It really is. And if you inspire a very strong emotion in your reader or your viewer, in this case, since it was a movie, then you've done your job as a writer. Whether they hate it or they love it, you've done your job. In fact, it isn't your job to make a reader love you. It's your job to make your reader react and think. And if you do that, then you've done your job, whether they hate you or they love you. It doesn't matter. That that isn't the important part. At least it isn't to me. I may be different from. Uh, I'm, I'm, we're all different from other writers. You know, no no two writers are the same. But but that is my that is my goal. I don't care if you love me or if you love my story. I want you to be moved by my story. I want you to react to it, whether it's good or bad. I want you to laugh or cry or get mad or be mildly amused. I want to to influence your mood in a way that only I can do, that, that, that only my words put my way can do. And when I approach a story from another writer, that's what I expect. I expect to be, I want to be stimulated. And if I'm not provoked and stimulated... I am not going to remember a fucking word I read. When you look at the stories on my pin board, that's where I keep my um, links to stories that I like. And stories that I really, really like, I put on um, Slash World as, as recommendations. And I don't wreck something unless it hit me in the face or in the gut. Um, sometimes stories are so powerful, whether they're powerful happy or powerful sad or just devastating like freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Yeah, that one. That's devastating. It's devastating. Freedom. If you've never read in the Stargate um, fandom, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose, you need to. Warn you up front, it's a death fic. It's, um beautiful it's provoking and devastating and i think you should read it at least once it, uh i read it once a year and i read it once a year since i entered fandom it's one of the first not the first but one of the first slash fictions i ever read for rodney and john um and even though that one where i don't want to read it for you if you haven't read it but i can't believe you haven't written it if if, if you haven't read it i can't believe you go read it uh it's the definitive work in Stargate, as, as, as far as I'm concerned. It, it'll tear your heart out, and it'll make you cry. And um, there's a link in the chat room for it if you're currently in the chat room. I think a lady holder just posted it. I have never read the story where I did not cry like a baby when it's over. It makes me cry so much. In fact, it it impacted me so much that I actually can't listen to Bobby McGee without crying. And the title of that story is a lyric from the song Bobby McGee. 
which is a great, great song. Um, Pink did a cover of Bobby McGee. You should check it out. It's fucking awesome. Um, and uh, but and that is the kind of reaction that you want as a writer. And if you if you get that one way or the other, if you make somebody laugh or you make somebody cry or you make somebody angry, then you, then you've done your your job. And I need uh, I need to take a little break. I'm gonna put some music on here and mute myself. I'll be back in about I don't know 45 seconds. Okay. who did not want to be on the air. Anyways. That was saying about provoking your reader. It's important. No matter what you provoke in them, it's super important. And the ability to do that comes from world building, character building, and plot. Let's talk about plot a little bit. Plot-driven. Um, people sometimes say that like it's dirty, like it's wrong, it's terrible. Oh, it was plot-driven. I just couldn't, I don't even why, I don't even know why it's popular. It's just so plot-driven, um, which is ridiculous because every story has a plot. It might not be a good plot or a solid plot or even a plot that makes sense, but you've got one because a plot is a sequence of events. And if you don't have a sequence of events, you don't actually have a story. So everything you read, write, watch on, you know, not everything you watch on TV, but some shit, 
whatever. <clears throat> yeah, you have to have a plot. If you don't, it's going to be really bad. <laughs> I don't even know how that would work. It's so, like, foreign to me. Okay, anyway, plot. It's a sequence of events, and I have some links talking about plot up at the top of the, um, in my uh, radio listing that you can um, check out, including a document um, on building a plot. And what's really interesting about this document, and it's located on Novel Plotting Worksheets on that link. If you click on that, the first link is a Word document. If you open that up, what's really interesting about this document, and one of the reasons why I linked it, is because it talks about external and internal conflicts. And when we talk about building characters, we talked about um, external and internal um, motivations, which is um, what you need to build your character on, you know, how they, what they feel, what they want, and how their environment impacts that. Those are internal and external conflicts or motivations, depending on how you want to word it. In your plot, you need both. If you don't have both, you're not going to engage your reader. So an internal plot or conflict, say your hero, let's just for instance, let's just go with John and Rodney because I have a lot of Stargate fans and um, that was my original, basically my original fandom as far as um, publishing online. Um, so say you're going to focus your main characters on John. John has a lot of internal conflicts that you can play with. Um, I read this awesome story once where they said that Shepard walked around Atlantis with a Teflon coating, and that's totally true. He um, He's emotionally constipated. He has daddy issues. Um, these are all internal conflicts. He uh, has commitment issues. Um, and if you write him gay, he has he's definitely in the closet. I mean... He, Except for all that cop blocking he does in canon, which my husband, who recently watched um, Atlantis, comes upstairs and says, "Oh my God!" And he calls he calls John Great White Hunter, and it goes back to that whole thing about those movies in the 30s and 40s where the white man would go into the native setting and the native girl would fall for him because he was exotic, you know. So John, so he calls John the Great White Hunter. So he comes up here and he says, "Great White Hunter is a cock blocker." It's true. It's true. He he spends a stupid amount of time caught blocking Rodney. It, it is amazing. <laughs> it really is. So he has that going on, and those are all internal to him. The caught blocking would be external to Rodney. <laughs> it would be an external conflict. Here's John getting in the way of Rodney's ability to get laid. That's you know that that's an external conflict for Rodney and an internal one for John because if you put a slash viewpoint over it, you can speculate that John is caught blocking Rodney because he wants him himself or he's in love with him and those are internal for John, but become external for Rodney since John is terrible about personal space and. Um, letting his friend get laid. And so, there you go. One person's internal conflict can be another person's external conflict. 
you have to, when you're building your plot, you have to build external and internal conflicts to match the motivations of your characters. So we have John, and he is, like we said, already established. He's a cock walker. He's probably in the closet. He, well, he's definitely in the closet because he married a woman. Uh, he, his closet is both, you can make it where it's just an external problem, wherein he is in the military, and if you make it before the, the um, abolishment of DADT, you have an external conflict impacting John's internal motivations. He's gay, but he can't say anything because he'll lose his job and he'll lose Atlantis, and in some cases he might even go to jail because there was a time when you could go to Leavenworth for that shit, um, <clears throat> for being gay in the military. And uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell is, in, in its way, just as terrible as the laws before that. Uh, so you have that to deal with. Uh, and those are, that, that, that's an example of how an internal conflict can also be external. Because you have John being uncomfortable with being gay or being un- unable to say he's gay or being unable even to acknowledge that he's gay or having a situation where his job and his goals and his desire to remain on Atlantis um, makes him stay in the closet. And so those conflicts come into play. Now, the biggest external conflict in Stargate Atlantis is the race. And the second would probably be the Janai. They are huge conflicts. The biggest external motivation in Target Atlantis in the first season is power. And it's and that's on multiple levels. We mean that in a physical way. There is the ZPM issue. Um, they don't have enough power to go home. That's an external conflict. They Elizabeth and John wrangle for power over the expedition, whether it's John's ambition or not. He's a leader, and you can see in these early episodes that not only does he not trust Elizabeth, he doesn't think she's strong enough to lead. As a result, he does not respect her. And these are external and internal motivations that conflict and build on the plot and the world that you're developing as a writer. So you come into this as a fan fiction writer, and all this is established for you, and that's great, and that's fine. You can totally ignore it. This is an issue <laughs> that I've been working on with Lady Holder since we met. <laughs> She's a slave to canon. Or she used to be. She's a lot better now. Um I have the opinion that canon is awesome and great, but I can totally fucking ignore it. It doesn't even have to, like, I can totally ignore it. That's that's how I could put Taylor on Earth in what might have been, and she was never an alien to begin with, because I have no fucks to give when it comes to canon. I can kick canon in the ass and be like, hey, bye, see ya, have fun. and Or I can... uh dig deep into canon and and tear it apart from the inside, which is also very interesting and fun to do. Uh, And so you have to decide how you want to do that. 
Uh, and But like I said, Lady Holder, who used to be really attached to canon, has um, lately come into her own as a writer and um, um, let go of canon. And that's a big step. That's a big step for a writer, it, uh, especially a fan fiction writer, because when you're a fan fiction writer, like I said, you have that foundation already been built for you. It's very comfortable, and it's very safe. It's a very safe place to be. So when you can push canon aside, when you can say, okay, no, that doesn't work for me. I'm going to do this instead. You're taking huge, a huge step in your development as a writer. And it becomes um, a building block on which you can start to build your own work. It... Uh, <clears throat> It's important. And, you know, and the thing is, I get a lot of flack from people who uh, who don't or don't know that I write professionally. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not famous. I'm never going to be. I have no interest in being famous. I'm a mid-list writer. Um, I have a cousin who's also published as a writer. Uh, and um, I don't talk about her, uh, mostly because I think that it would lead people back to me. And um, but uh, that's you know it's not it's a it's a separation issue for me. But one of the things that I get from other writers who know that I fuck around with fan fiction is why would you waste your time with that? Um, and these people don't understand what it means to be a writer. And I say that knowing that that they're actually writers. Uh, and there are two kinds of people who put words to paper. There are writers and there are authors. Uh, and then there are people being motivated to be published. Motivations for publication uh, come from different places. Some people write because they can't not write. And I'm one of those people. I've been writing since I was very small. Even before I could actually, you know, put concept, you know, concepts down on paper and write, I told I was a storyteller. I told my grandma stories. Um, I told my cousin stories. My cousin told me stories. And my cousin actually, um, Stan, even though he works, he's a lawyer. Um, he uh, he actually uh, writes graphic novels. He's very talented. Um, he doesn't. Um, he he has no interest whatsoever in being published, though. So there's that, and and he does it for himself. And sometimes he shares it, and um, he sometimes he illustrates stuff that I write just for fun, and we have little fun things that we do that actually have no um, value beyond what we do for ourselves. And the last project we did together, um, we told story of uh, the, the two psychotic chickens in graphic novel form, and it turned out to be like 150 pages of graphic novel, and we put it together, and we uh, we printed it through Amazon, and we made, we got a copy for all the cousins, and there are quite a few of those, um, and we put it out to all of our cousins, and um, so that it was just for us, it's just for our family, so there's that little book floating around with, with both our names on it, our real ones, and um, it's just for us, it's, it's not for anybody else, but it's terribly funny, he's, uh, he's great, he's, he's very talented um, artistically and um, from a story point of view, but I told the story, and he, and he did the... Um, the pictures, but uh, it's great. And when you're a creative person, 
you don't need outside validation. So when it comes back to writers who publish, there are people who publish for the sake of publishing. There are people who publish because they want to be famous. There are people who publish who think they can make money doing it. I am going to tell you a truth. You can write this down. 95% of people who write professionally in fiction do not make a living at it. It happens. J.K. Rowling happens. E.L. James unfortunately happens. It's rare. Don't pin your hopes on it. Don't assume you're Stephen King. I count myself to be a talented writer. I acknowledge that I have this ability. And for the record, that book about the psychotic chickens is not available on Amazon for sale. It was a private publishing. Um, it was done like five years ago. I'm not even sure. It was just, it was very private. We didn't put it online because um, we didn't want anybody else to buy it. Anyways, it's before they even had that current self-publishing um, thing going on anyway. It was way before that. Uh, <clears throat> at any rate, uh, any, so, you know, you're not – I don't want to discourage you from being a professional writer if, if that is your goal. I just want you to accept the reality that you don't – that doing it for money is um, setting yourself up for failure. Um, as I said, you know, I acknowledge that I have a talent and a gift for it. Um, I'm still mid-list, and I don't make enough money to support myself as a writer. So if you think I'm talented, and that's wherever you want to think, I don't care, um, and you acknowledge that I do have that ability, and I don't make money at it, we're not all Stephen King. We're not all J.K. Rowling. We're not all Nora Roberts. And they're all very talented writers in their own right, right? But Stephen King wrote for, I don't know, a decade and a half before he got published. Um but back to the point I was making about um, Lady Holder, and uh, I hate to put her on the spot, but she's um, she's actually someone um, I spend a lot of time with as a writer, um, and um, I uh, I've been her beta, and she's been my beta for a long time, and as a result, we've um, created a, a relationship out of it, <laughs> and she. And letting go of canon, which she has been doing for the past year, has seen her um, a leap in her growth as a writer. And that leap for a fan fiction writer is the point where if you've only ever written fan fiction, and some people are that way, when you let go of canon and you can say no, I'm going to do this instead because I don't like what they did here. And when you can do that, that's one step closer to your own world building, your own character building, your own plot building. I have the privilege of reading um, Lady Holder's, uh, I'm not sure if it's her very first effort in, in, in original fiction, I don't know, 
Um, but I did get to beta. She said it is is her first endeavor in original fiction, and I got to read it and I got to beta it, and she currently has it back, and it's it's fantastic, and I can't wait to see what she does with it, and I'm um, I'm pretty excited about that. It um it's a big step for her. It's a big step for writers um, when they make that transition, and um, it's exciting, but. I don't think writing fan fiction is a waste of time. If I did, I wouldn't do it. I think if it makes you happy, if it entertains you, if it stimulates you, if it um, allows you to be creative in a way that is satisfying, then it doesn't matter what it is. That's yours. And you can own it and do it and and be happy with it. You don't have to justify yourself. And so when someone asks me, why do you waste your time writing fan fiction, my first and usual response is go fuck yourself. And I mean that. I really do. Because how I entertain myself and how I spend my free time is nobody's business but my own whether it's hobby fiction writing or masturbation. That's my business. And don't let anybody tell you how you can spend your spare time. Spare time is a luxury. It is. And, you know, there was a time when I worked two jobs until I married my husband and he decided to keep me in the fashion in which I would like to exist. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Although my husband does support me, and he's awesome. He's he's fucking fantastic, and um, he uh, supports me as a writer and as a person. And, um, he also supports me financially because, like I said, I don't make um, I don't make enough money to live on as a writer. But he um, supports my dream, and that is invaluable. When you have somebody in your life, whether it's a friend or a lover or a spouse, who supports you. In your in your dreams, whatever they may be, that is absolutely fucking priceless. It's amazing. So you have that going for you, and if you do, then you're just the luckiest person out there. You really are. So how you spend your spare time is your business. If you want to write fan fiction for the rest of your life, that's what you can fucking do. And if anybody doesn't like it, you can tell them to kiss your ass and mine too. You let them know that, they can kiss my ass. Because it's not a waste of your time if it makes you happy. I hate to see that. I really do. I hate to hear that from people. Um, It's really fucking infuriating. I have cussed more people out over this issue than any other I remember um, doing a writing seminar, and Lady Holder's on hold, and I'm going to put her on the air in a few minutes, and we're going to talk about her original project and how she, um, not the content, because I I think that should be a surprise, but um, just her process a little bit and um, what she thought about when she um, sat down to write her own work. And we'll talk talk about her world building and her plot and her characters, and that will be really fun. So before we do that, I... Totally forgot what the fuck I was going to say. Oh, my God, it just fell right out of my head. (laughs) I don't even know. It's it's gone. It's totally gone. 
Um, you know, oh, okay, I was at a seminar. I was at a seminar, and um, I was um, presenting on a plot, and I we had these worksheets that we put together, and um, there were like 25 kids in this thing, and it was a college-level course. It was like a... 201 or maybe a 301 course. I mean, they you know they weren't freshmen. Um, and talking about building a story, and I picked up a couple at random, and I I stumbled across one that was fan fiction, and I was fascinated by her um, construction and and how she had taken canon events, and it was uh, uh, it's been a long time, but I I want to say it was Harry Potter. It might have been. No, it was definitely Harry Potter. It was definitely. I was thinking it might have been Percy Jackson, but I'm almost entirely positive it was Harry Potter. And so I was fascinated by the canon events that she had taken and the parts that she planned to ignore. And um, so without thinking about it, I latched onto this because I, I found it fascinating. And um, we were talking about it, and she answered my questions, and I didn't realize at the time that I made her uncomfortable. And that's one of the biggest regrets I have about this this, this particular seminar is that I made her uncomfortable at first. Um, because I think if she'd have realized that I was also a fan fiction writer and that I uh, that I really enjoy fandom, she probably would not have used this idea for this exercise because uh, it put her on the spot. And um, I apologize after the fact, but it was done and it was, you know, and so we talked about it for like 20 minutes. I mean, and... Um, I moved to the next one, and in the middle of this, the person that I was then talking to made this horrible, snotty-ass comment about um, wasting your time writing fan fiction. (sighs) And it was infuriating. And I tore his worksheet to pieces, and I don't regret it, no regrets, I tore apart his premise. I tore apart his... I mean, I just... I ripped it to pieces. Um, and um, I I just couldn't help myself because I was so irritated with him and his snotty behavior. And then I talked to them about um, creativity and um, honoring yourself as a creative person and doing what interests you. And uh, I told them this, and I mean this to this day, don't write. If you're writing to be famous, you're not a writer. If you think being published is a route to being famous, you're not a writer. Writers are born. And you don't... You might dream of being published. Writers do. But it isn't your motivation. It's a dream. Your motivation is intrinsic to you. It You don't even know where it comes from, and that's what being a writer is. It's just integral to your character, to who you are. When you're not doing something with your hands, you're thinking about writing. When you're not speaking, you're thinking about writing. You're building stories in your head. You're building characters in your head. That's a writer. I'm not saying that's the only way to be a writer. I'm just saying if you're born a writer, that's what you do. Writers can't be created. 
you either are one or you're not one. And the product of your mind, whether it's fan fiction or original fiction, it has value. And don't let anybody tell you that your words don't have value. I mean that. And when I talk to young writers, I tell them that value yourself, value your creativity, honor your words. Do not let anybody tell you that your words don't have value. Having the ability to be published does not equal having the being a valuable writer. Does that make sense? You know what? There are people who are published right now who have proved that anybody can practically get published. You can publish yourself on Amazon. Being published is not the mark of a good writer. Respecting yourself, respecting your work, and respecting your creative product, that's the mark of a good writer. And that's all I have to say about that. We're going to put Lady Holder on the line here. And we're going to talk to her about um, her decision to write original work. Lady Holder, oh, you're on the original. air. Ah, thank you. My decision to write original. Um, you realize I call that thing my homework assignment. Okay. <laughs> this is true. I told her. Um, I didn't order her, but I suggested that she make the leap. Bullshit. <laughs> I did. It was a fucking suggestion. It was a fucking suggestion. <laughs> when when the lady who has been kicking your ass for the last four years we've been hanging around together um, tells you that you are proficient enough and um, at it to actually take a stab outside of your comfort zone, because it was, um, it was my homework assignment. And I had that thing out. And just so you all know, I work. I, I work at a, a, a job that is 40-plus hours a week some weeks. Um, I'm on the phone. I don't have all the time, um, time to write. So for me, when I write, it's in fits and starts, and there's normally a notebook open on my desk that – at times, I've been really glad that nobody's picked up and started to read because they don't really need to see the start of a sex scene. This doesn't go well with the work environment. Um, <laughs> but it really didn't. But the thing is, it's, it's an itch. It's, it's, I'm a storyteller, okay? Um, I never, when I was a kid, I never thought of myself as a writer, but I did think of myself as a storyteller. And I'm unlike Kira in that when I plot, most of it's in my head. And I have a very good idea of where I want to go and how I'm going to get there. But sometimes the, this sounds good idea that comes along will push me slightly off course evidenced by my nano and making um, Elizabeth basically be MPD. I don't get hung and up on the details shit. so much. 
Actually, her her belfry her belfry is denuded of bats because the bell rang and and let everybody loose. Um, <laughs> it's a good time. Um, I don't get hung up on the details so much as it's a. Um, sometimes what I can put in words when I'm talking to somebody doesn't turn out the same way when you're writing because. <laughs> it's a it's a different medium, you know. You have to put the shades that I can put in my voice. I can't put on paper the same way, you know. So it makes it interesting. All right. I can and, tell a story on um, my cousin Stan. I can tell a story about my, about my cousin Stan on my live journal, and then turn around uh-huh. the same story to you on the phone, and mm-hmm. while the content will be the same, the impact will be entirely different. The punchlines are in different no, spots. Yeah. You know, the, the, you the, the emotional you. context, you find you write dif- differently with one hand versus two hands typing, or writing versus typing. Um, Jillian, I have what I call the magic pen, and it basically takes my handwriting and turns it into text. And I love that thing with the fire and burning. I mean, that thing will never go out as far as I'm concerned. It is a Echo, Logitech Echo. And the husband oh, got I'll it for me. And, huh? I'm going to go online and look it up for you. Amazon. What the okay. fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't die in the fire. No, I'm not planning on it. And I swear to God that the... Um, the pen basically gets plugged in every day that I write with it because I'm not going to lose, you know, the what's on it. Um, there was one day I thought I left it behind at my office and I damn near died. It was a bad day. But that, I like writing by writing. I'm about 50-50 uh, most of the time. That would be the one. Um, the link for a digital uh, pen yeah. in the, uh, the chat. I will add it to the description of the radio show after um, we mm-hmm. finish. I have a I have a holster for it actually. <laughs> Sorry, <Sarah. laughs> I've got one. <laughs> it's great. Um, I literally I'm about fifty fifty, and it. The the <laughs> yes you are uh, the the pen means sometimes I get down the very broad strokes of what I want to do. Um, I've got part of the next chapter of my nano uh, written down in one notebook where I've got the very broad strokes of the scene, and now I get to fill in everything, and that will probably be done <laughs> with me doing it on computer because I type much faster than I write, but when I'm out, I don't particularly like to lug around a, a, a computer. It's just not worth the effort on my back. So, yeah. That's interesting. I have a laptop. Um, I also have a uh, Droid tablet. I recently mm-hmm. bought a um, Bluetooth foldable uh, keyboard, and it works with my phone and my um, tablet. It is freaking awesome. 
I can use Google Docs and, and write in it. And my word count is a little lower on it, maybe 100 words a minute. Mm-hmm. But it's better than nothing. I'm going to find a link for it and put it up, on, um, put it up in the chat room. Um, and yes, I'll I'm definitely going to want that because, you know, I, I, will, I will poke that around and, and tell the husband that that's a good thing to, to get because he likes doing the just because <laughs> gifts. And, frankly, if I can get electronics out of it, I'm all for the good. It's a rechargeable <laughs> Bluetooth, um, um, Android-supported um, foldable keyboard. Uh, I'm going to put the link mm-hmm. in the chat room, and I will also put the link up on the uh, radio show after the fact. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool because it folds mm-hmm. up, so you can suck it into your um, bag, and it's um, mm-hmm. very lightweight, mm-hmm. very lightweight. And uh, it's only $34 on Amazon, so that's not a huge purchase, um, especially for nope. what you get out of it. So huh. it's not bad at all. Interesting. There is a definite And those of you who are Prime members, it is Prime. Yeah. And it lasts a long time. I've charged it um, once. I've had it for two months. I've charged it once. Nice. Huge battery life. Yeah, huge battery life. Yeah. The the thing that I like about um, the way I write is I can also, I can see the words, I can flip back and forth, and unlike paging up and down, which I can do with documents, the flipping back and forth, it satisfies something in me, and, you know, it's a nice feeling. Um, I know that, that for me, the, the becoming published is not going to be, I'm not going to quit my day job. I don't care how much I want to do that. Um, but it's going to be a creative creative outlet that I really need. And that's one of the reasons why I got into fanfic, because it's creative, and it's something that's fun, and it stretches you. Okay? So, lots of good things. As far as the characters go, (laughs) uh, there's three characters in question, two men and a woman, and I actually casted them using actors because I needed faces. And it was just easier to have people whose faces I knew and body types that I knew so that way I could use that. And it, it, yes, I was still creating a world from whole cloth, but at least I had something to use. Sybil in the chat room wants to know, do your fingers ever get so behind your thoughts that you type gibberish and wonder what it was? <laughs> uh, no, actually that happens more on my pen because it learns my handwriting. And the problem with it is um, given my job, I have at one point or another learned to drop all the vowels out of my words. So occasionally I'm writing along and I look at what I've just written and there's about three vowels in the whole sentence, and there's ten words. Okay? I know what I said. <laughs> the computer looks at it and barfs. So what okay. the fuck? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It was a good What's day. interesting about her magic pen is sometimes um, when I'm doing her beta, no, I'm like, oh, I'm not stressed what you meant to say. <laughs> yeah, I'm real. Yeah. Because 
Because it will make a guess as to what the word she was trying to say, and it's fabulous and very entertaining, but often it's very wrong. One of the things I had a problem with my previous, I had a Dell Inspiron, and as it got older, I could actually type faster than the buffer in Microsoft Word could keep up with. So I would be like four or five words ahead of what was on the screen. Uh Uh-huh. Does anybody remember the Stargate SG-1? Yeah, the Stargate yes. SG-1 episode with the armband. Not that extreme. And yeah, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. But it was an old computer, and, and once I got a new computer, it was it was fine. But, um, yeah, just when the computer got old, and it was a, I guess it was maybe a processing issue, it was just, I would be four or five words ahead typing than what was on the screen, and it was annoying. I couldn't imagine being several thousand words ahead like she was. <laughs> oh, my God. I've actually typed... Um, so fast on my present computer that my counter, the the word counter, sits there and goes blank until I stop moving oh, yeah. my fingers and then it'll catch up with me. That's always. I think that's actually a Microsoft much. Word glitch because that happens to me too. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if it's typing speed or if it's just a glitch in the software. Because I don't type nearly. I've had that sit there for five minutes and not catch up. Mm-hmm. I don't type that fast. Um, I'm probably in the mid-50s to 60s. Um, but the thing is, is I'm also the person who will remember most of a good conversation and be able to spit back um, the high points of it, which tends to make it interesting when Karen and I plot because she'll ask me what, what we just went over and I'll you know, have it all back to her. And I'll be able so, to type it all out. <laughs> pretty much. Makes it makes life really interesting. And the thing is, is um, one thing I found with doing the original stuff was I didn't have that, okay? At least I didn't feel like I did because it was everything that, that I did had to come out of my head. The world that I created was the world I created. And so... Um, there has to be a logic behind it and the underpinning that um, I put in place, it had to be, it had to make sense. Okay. Uh, in so you have to have as, confidence in the world. Well, yeah. But it, all the way, it, it, if I changed something, you're right, if I changed something in Chapter 6, I had to make sure that I walked it back. And... <laughs> um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, I, I I have one character who in this world is a very, very, very old character. And to be able to do what he does, I had to know what was going on with him. Jesus Christ, people, the tea lady is alive. Leave the woman alone. For the love of God, Green Earth, and John Watson. <laughs> I wondered when you would see that in the chat room. For those of you who are on the podcast or who will be listening to this later after after we're no longer live, they've been discussing the, the tea lady, and the tea lady is oh a my God. story that Lady Holder and I are writing together very, 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 very slowly. It's called a uh, beautiful and dangerous things. It's a Sherlock home. It's a Sherlock John Watson Sentinel guide um, AU and. Um, 
we were writing it together, and, and I had this little tea lady who was my comic relief, and I found her very amusing, and I send the story off to Lady Holder, and I get it back, and she's killed my tea lady. Of course, I couldn't let, I, I couldn't let that stand. And then um, I no. bitched about it one night in chat or maybe even on the radio show. No, and you bitched about it thing. here. Did I? Yeah. You bitched about it here, it's and I spent a good ten minutes. Yeah, I just get I spent a good ten minutes on hold, having an absolute conniption because I couldn't say anything. And that's why you were on myself. hold. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing about original characters. And I'm not sure if this came up last time I talked about it or not, but you get attached mm-hmm. to original characters. Oh yeah. And uh, that's why I have a hard time killing uh, my original characters. And I don't know. I'm telling you right now, I if I'd written I, Harry Potter, I think the only real deaths would have been Death Eaters and James and Lily. The I couldn't have killed Fred. I couldn't have. No, Fred. Fred lives. Dolores Umbridge dies. Um. You know, out of all of them, I was. It would have been great. Voldemort could have gone to jail for all I cared, but I wanted Umbridge to die. I wanted her to die badly, <laughs> painfully. Um, <laughs> it, burn, yes. I hated her more than Snape, yeah. and that's saying something. Because I don't want Snape at yeah, all as a character. Um, no. Sirius would not have died. She, I have a real problem with it. it I'm, I'm just. I don't know. I, oh, what it boils down to, um, and, it's a, and it's an issue of external and internal conflicts when you're when you're building your plot. I am much more interested as a writer in internal conflicts um, and character mm-hmm. growth than I am external conflicts. Which is why you'll notice in a lot of my fan fiction in Stargate, I don't. There's not a lot of race, like in ties that bind. Mm-hmm. Not seen a single race. <laughs> there have been no, no. race in ties of bond. <laughs> but you, you did. You of course, did the race are a big threat in um, Sentinels of Atlantis, but mm-hmm. that's a different story. Yeah, but you did mention um, that with ties, uh, figuring out how to fold the race into it would have been very, very difficult. And so, rather than bother, yeah, rather than bother with them, they just kind of got shoved to the background. Um, one of the other ones it's because where... Because Tides is a relationship thick. It's a relationship story, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's... It, it would be difficult to justify the time that Rodney spends on... That, mm-hmm. that John and Rodney spend together privately in the background of an active war. Um, right. Which is why the Wraith are kind of quiet but, in Ties that right. Bind. I was going to say, Sybil, the thing with John being fed on, that's historical at that point. That's not something that is currently going on with the relationship between John and Rodney. Okay? Now, God help you if a wraith actually touches Rodney in the Ties to Bind universe, because what will end up happening after that will be less than, um, well, less than pretty. So, we'll pass on that one. Um, it's Okay, I need to answer some questions here in the chat room. Okay, sure, go um, for it. Okay, there, um, the video of John getting fed on, that's canon. They, the Janai the mm-hmm. broadcast them feeding John to that race. And what might have been, that video is released on Earth, and his whole family sees it, everybody sees it. Um, mm-hmm. And ties that bind, 
that footage ends up in the report that Summers files, and so the people at Desaad see it, and Dato and Dato Raja sees it, and Gerard has seen it, mm-hmm. um, because it's part of the case against John, because they're implying that John's not human, because it builds up to the bug um. footage, which is also in that report that Summers files. So there are two different things. The bug video does not make an appearance in what might have been. It happened, it's in John's file, but those videos no longer Rodney, exist. They never they never right, made it back John, from Atlantis. Rodney mentioned No one's he, seen, he's seen in, what, in, in what might have been no one's no. seen John as a bug. In ties that oh, no, bind, the bug footage is in um in it and and Rodney did see it. Mhm. No, Summer Summer's doesn't so, need to die in a fire, that's too er, that's too easy. Let's just, you know, do all sorts of other things. But when you, really but you look yeah. at these can, but but you look at this can event and and how it's treated in these different mm-hmm. stories. Um, whereas you know the bug footage in uh, what might have been is hidden, and it's it's, it's very hidden because um, mm-hmm. Jennifer mm-hmm. It, and John were both afraid that if the people on Earth realized how fundamental the changes were to John, that John would end up in the lab in Area 51 and they'd never see him again. And ties that bind. John is different. And he literally has no fucks to give. And he knows for a fact that Area 51 isn't going to fucking be experimenting on him. He doesn't care who knows. It's top secret. That's why it's it is what it is. But he didn't worry about hiding that footage and what might have been because he is confident of his position, number one, in the military. And number two, in social politics and in social hierarchy, he is he is a dom who's very much in control of his life, and he just doesn't shoot somebody in the head and talk about it. So he has no fear of being experimented on at Area 51 in, in, in ties that bind. Whereas in what might have been, he's hidden all these changes about himself to stay safe, to mm-hmm. keep from being turned into an experiment. And so... you. The the world building in the cases of both of these two stories have changed John's perspective mm-hmm. on that event, and that's the point of world building. When you when you're in fandom, when you're in fan fiction, and you change the way a world fundamentally works, it impacts your characters. It impacts how your mm-hmm. characters respond to situations emotionally, mentally, and physically. The so. other thing is, you know, quite frankly, the Yes, the world building, the way you did it, um, it's a ties that bind is much more, they're a lot more savage than what were, what might have been. All right. Because, oh, yeah. Um, There's a, yeah. What I would yeah. say about ties that bind is ties that bind has a veneer of civilization. Mm-hmm. And... Um, justifiable homicide is a legit thing in Ties That Bind. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene in the one that I just posted um, at the Broken Road. The one, the, the mm-hmm. one I just posted. The one, oh, the the uh, the one on Rough Trade. Ties that, yeah, Ties That Bind. No, the one, the part I posted oh, last. That one. 
I don't remember. Hmm. Me neither. I know the one you're uh, talking about, yeah. There's a scene in that last part that I posted, and I'm going over to the page so I can look it up because that's driving me crazy. Me too. Uh, <laughs> it's called The Broken Road, our, right? This is our um, Okay, part 14, The Broken Road. There's a scene where um, Devereaux comes to John's house, and John tells him, if I kill you right now in this room, I'll get away with it. And that uh-huh. was the truth. Because yep. he would have gotten away with it. It would have been considered justifiable homicide. If he laid a hand on Rodney, John would have been justified in killing him. If in the course of the trial, as long as Rodney is wearing John's collar, if someone lays hands on Rodney without John's permission, John can kill them. That is a fundamental law of ties that bind. Mm-hmm. He has absolutely he has absolute authority over Rodney's body mm-hmm. and his work okay. and him emotionally yep. as long as Rodney willingly wears his collar. And if yep. anybody physically okay. interferes with that, they're going to die. Well, that doesn't seem like a bad idea to me. Um, I just called <laughs> out about about the the the, the stuff on my. Um, on my homework assignment. So, question away. Yeah. Um, let's, let's let's go for it. Gosh, uh, what was the most difficult part of your world building? Thinking a pl- thinking about a plausible reason to get my couple, or actually, in this case, it's actually a trio together. Okay, and how to make it work. Because when you gave me the homework assignment, um, it was... Very vague. <laughs> very vague. It was... It was like, was like this. shifters are hot and threesomes are so well. <laughs> yes, basically that was what it was. And so I had to figure out how to make it work. And so... You know, I fired back a couple of questions to you, but after I got the, the, the answers back, the, the rest of it I had to come up with on my own. So how do I, how do I put them together? Okay, because that was, you know, that was the big thing. Um, and you actually kicked something back to me and told me to, I, I, I'd, started the action in the middle but I started it too far and I needed to fill in a little bit and so I had to instead of having the chapter one I originally had I had to have a new one and it worked um it was it was actually pretty easy for me to set up um a different chapter one and blend it in okay but it was a case of I pushed too far into the story and not realized it. So, <laughs> yes, because reasons, you know. And, you know, here, here's the thing where the, the blame um, Teen Wolf and, you know, uh, unfortunately Twilight, but, you know, shifters are hot. People like them. They want to read them. So, You know, I don't, I, again, I used actual people 
um, as my as my inspiration for who the characters were. The the people have no bearing on the personalities, but you know I liked how they were put together, so it made it much easier. One of the Next things is, um, that you do when um, she's created a uh, <clears throat> a verse where shifters are kind of known. You know, her mm-hmm. heroine is human, and her heroes mm-hmm. are together already. Are not. A couple. They're, they're werewolves. Um, mm-hmm. And there's this whole system of mating rituals and, and balls and, you know, mating balls, mm-hmm. like events, not actual testicles. <laughs> No, no, it's it's not like it's not like truck falls. It's not like truck falls. You don't hang them out uh, in the window. Nodding, and um, you create, uh, and all these things come into creating a a reality. And what's really interesting about Mm -hmm. the nodding is that um, werewolf fiction is is not a new thing. Um, It's been around since way way Mm -hmm. before Twilight. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's um. It, there was a time when, the, when in romance where it was just huge. I mean, it was like huge. In fact, if you go look at um, a lot of um, publisher sites, in their no-no list, they'll have bestiality listed. Werewolf fiction oh, Jesus, is the Christ. reason why a lot of publishers have bestiality on their no-no list. Because sometimes writers get a little carried away. I'm going to tell you right now. It's not no I won't say the book, but there is a writer, and this is commercially published fiction in print, okay, um, and her hero path shifts during the middle of sex. Yeah. I mean, he furs out. It's like, you know, I don't know, like Lupin in Harry Potter. Not an actual dog <laughs> shape, but like totally not a human shape, and they keep fucking. (laughs) Then there's worse. There's a character also in this book who got cursed into having a... His penis is like a dog's. Okay. No, it's sheathed and unsheathed. Yeah, no. That guy's actually... Have you ever seen a dog's penis? Okay, that's what his penis does when he gets hard. It slips out like a dog's. It is the most horrifying, disgusting thing. Oh, my fucking God. Oh, my God. Apparently, I read this this in absolute horror. I was was horrified. Why did you read this? um, I was considering um, submitting to the publisher. um, Oh. And I had picked out a couple of books at the bookstore, the publisher, and that's what you do when you're getting ready to publish or submit to a publisher. You go to that publisher site, you pick out a couple of books that are in the genre that you're interested in writing in, and you um, you uh, read them to see what they're looking for, to to see what yeah. the editors at that company are are, are buying and, and what they're interested in seeing. Um, and so after I read that, I had no interest whatsoever in publishing that company. I don't blame you. Oh, my golly. That's just that's just horrific. Um, oh, that's funny, though, because I eventually did publish with that company. <laughs> that's a different matter altogether. <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't my choice. Editor. It was my agent's choice. It, it was my agent's uh, choice. Okay. 
Um, uh, it's um, if somebody guess the name of the of the author in the chat room. It I've never actually read Laurel K. Hamilton, so I can tell you with a hundred percent certainty that it's not her. Um, I'm not going to yeah, say no, the author's name because I don't do that. I don't, I don't, because yeah. it's, you know, the author, like, you can write whatever the hell you want to. Like we talked about earlier, you know, it's your job as a writer to provoke the reader. Mm-hmm. And she definitely provoked me. I felt provoked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was too. It's, here's, it's on a, here's I don't believe it's appropriate to discuss writers in name that way, because... Mm-hmm. That is, I'm attaching some kind of value to her work, like I'm saying it's bad or it's good, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to put some kind of, um, I don't want to bash her, and I don't want it to appear that I'm bashing her. It was just, what she did was, was, it provoked me in a way that was horrifying, and so she did her job as a writer. She definitely got Mm -hmm. her, and some people have no problem with it whatsoever. None. Not a, they ate that shit up. They loved it. Um... And some, you know, so, but that's one of the reasons why I don't, um, I don't agree with bashing. I don't, I don't want to see mm-hmm. it on my sites. I, you're, you're, you're never going to hear it on here um, when it comes to mm-hmm. either professional writers or fan fiction writers. I think it's terribly inappropriate to degrade another writer. Um, and even when I'm furious or disgusted with something a writer has done, I'm, I, I'm just not going to do it because I know the. As a creative person, when you create, you're you're putting yourself out there in a way that's. Uh, I joked about a rough trade when I originally made it and said that it was naked. It was naked nano because you're exposing your work to these people unedited and unmodified. And yeah. Sometimes not even yeah. fucking spell checked, and it creates a situation where you feel naked, literally naked, mm-hmm. stripped bare. And when you bash another writer. When you say, oh, she sucks, or oh, they suck, or oh, I can't believe they did this, and then you go on and on about it. And as, as, as much as I joke about sparkly vampires, I've never actually read Twilight. <laughs> I just think sparkly vampires I have are either. cliche and kind of cute, too. I mean, but I don't actually read. I mean, Harry Potter is really the only – the only YA I read are the books that my, my Padawan, my, my nephew reads. And um, as he's gotten older, I stopped monitoring the books that I buy him to such an extent. Because a lot of times I read books just to make sure I wasn't buying him something horrific. You know, yeah. like I refused to buy him The Hunger Games until he was 14. Because, hello. Um, I didn't read and it, if, I haven't read that one. I, if, my sister if did, I understood the, uh, the depth of Harry Potter's depravity, he probably would not have read that, to be perfectly honest, because it's terrible. I mean, yeah. you think about it. Harry Potter is prepared through trial and tribulation over seven books to commit suicide. It's, <laughs> it's not a great kid, okay. kid's book. <laughs> no, it's not. And I'm, pull, I'm pulling us back on topic. Let's go back to, to you know, tormenting myself here and, and the original uh, story here. Um, the... That's, for for anybody who's who's wondering over the the whole of this thing, the gentlemen in question have regular humanish uh, dangly bits. Um, the only thing that they've got is is they've got a knot, all right, and it's under their control. They can choose whether or not to let that thing go. Okay, so you know that's that's about the only thing I took out of their heritage. And nobody wolfs out in the middle of of you know sex, and there's no bestiality or anything weird of that nature in that because 
It's not something. And if that there has been in her rough draft, there won't be in her final. <laughs> oh, damn, Skippy! You know, it's it's not something well, that is. What's interesting, I think, about this experience between the two of us as writers is that um, I have never had a heavy hand with her when it comes to beta, her fan, her uh-huh. fan fiction. And I think that my nope. I was a little heavy-handed on her beta for her original. I mean, there were 505 Guys, revisions. It's a 34, 35-page thing. And it, how, how many came? Was it like 25? Pages. I don't know how many thousand words it was. It was 22,000 words. And 505 revisions. Yeah. Um, Which is like a record, I think. No, not nearly. Um, Some of those are uh, basic grammar corrections and paragraph corrections and not something I'm really worried about. I knew what I was getting into. Okay. Um, I did. I'm going to say that okay. I was actually nervous about doing her beta for this project, and I'll tell you why. Um, I've had uh, terrible experiences with other writers when it comes to um, offering um, um, a, a alpha reader. Alpha. Bleh, bleh, alpha reader. <laughs> alpha. Yeah. Yeah, an alpha reader perspective. Because um, mm-hmm. a beta, you know, when you beta fanfic, it's, it's it's easy to um, give somebody artistic license and and not worry about um, okay this doesn't actually work with your world this isn't actually physically possible <laughs> you know, that's not really oh yeah I got one, I've got a couple of those comments <laughs> that I've got to go back in and and adjust things and but and that's the thing when you're, um, when what I would say just about the beta relationship is that. Um, while it's never okay to be cruel to your writing partner, the person that you're working on this project with, Mm -hmm. it is imperative that you be honest, Mm -hmm. gentle, but honest, because if you're not Mm -hmm. being honest with the person on the other end of it, you're wasting their time and your time as well. Yeah. The... The thing I, I knew when I turned it in, because I, I obsessed over I polished it, I sat there and I stared at my words. I knew that going in, there were going to be words that, you know, they're wrong choices for the, the, the um, sentence or, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's, well, actually, in a lot of cases, it's the grammar. Um, you know, it's it's not something I can't see those errors. I need somebody else no, it's, to make. No, it's it's impossible to edit to, um, to edit yourself. Yeah. Because yeah. your mind supplies you with with what you meant to say. So you yeah. you miss the fact that you didn't put words in or you used the wrong word because your mind the the story that you wrote it's it's in your head. So it's difficult to look past what you wrote in your head and what's on paper and to see the difference. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's why having an alpha or a beta reader or um, mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. an editor is A pair of beta readers. Mm-hmm. Yes, because they give you different perspectives. Um, yeah. Chris and Lightholder give me vastly different perspectives when it comes to uh, yeah. 
um, beta. And I hope that Chris and I also give Lady Holder a different perspective when when it comes to beta. Oh, you do. Um, Although there's I, one uh, thing in common that you both share: more sex here seems to show up for both of you. You know, because there's nothing you know, wrong. Although with sex. you pick your different. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with a good no, dog bucking. No, and I gave you several. In in in. Uh, um, <laughs> you totally did. I was I was really pleased with that. Uh, and I I tried to find the sex. Own, you, know, you know, here here's the thing. I find that writing sex is about the least sexy thing I can do. Okay? And it really got interesting the day I was writing sex and I sat there and I stopped and I, I held up my hand and started counting where I had all the limbs. Okay? Because I had six arms, <laughs> draw, six legs, draw, three dicks. on a piece of paper. <laughs> Basically, I had, I had two dicks, one vagina, three, three mouths. I had to actually count where everything was in relationship it's to this. important and because you don't want your heroes about an extra arm when you, when you when you're not looking you know because it could happen well it wasn't just some it, it well the extra arm thing is always a, a thing to be careful of but it's also the thing of you know um I'm not into tantric sex and I can't elongate my heroine by 6 inches and and turn her into a pretzel to make that particular move and you know <laughs> it just doesn't work some days one of the worst things about young writers is that they uh, tend to write um, very unrealistic, impossible, anatomically impossible sex. I'm like, dude, that's not how that works. No, really, that, that, that's not how that works. Like, I, I have a friend <laughs> who writes um, gay, and... Um, I don't have a prostate. <laughs> I'm a girl. Um, yeah. But I can yeah, read anatomy are. books. And I don't think the average person is going to have the tongue long enough to stimulate the prostate. Not unless they're I could be wrong about that. I don't think oh, I wait am. A second. What, about that guy, what about that guy from Kiss? That's different. <laughs> he's not the average person. <laughs> no, he's not, but he may have a tongue long enough. You know? On the other hand, sleeping with that. Ooh. You know? And, no, I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but, you know, outside of his makeup, oh, boy. Gary, either way. Let's just be honest. Yes, he is. Um, yeah. Okay. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a thought. unrealistic sex unrealistic science uh, no one expects you when you're when you're building a world or you're plotting to be an expert in quantum physics unless you actually have a phd in quantum physics and if you do then you should definitely get it right if you're writing a fucking book about quantum physics i'm just saying but no one expects you <laughs> to be an expert on that um there is a uh a, a level of competence expected from your character so you want to try as hard as you can to get it right um, mm-hmm. And trying hard to get it right is better than not trying at all. Uh, if your hero is a professional driver, understanding the mechanics of a car and how that works, and um, you know, mm-hmm. that's important shit to, to, to focus on. Um, so when you when, when you give your character a career, that's part of your world building mm-hmm. and part of your character building. 
it's super important to get those details as right as possible. Um, unless you're just going to say, fuck it, and we're, we're going to have warp drive, and who cares? <laughs> who gives well, a shit how that works? Warp speed, Mr. Chekhov, or is it Sulu? It's Sulu. It's Sulu. It's Sulu. <laughs> and here's the thing. They, they found um, impulse engines are actually a go. They're, they're working on those. Um, oh, warp we got 30 seconds. They haven't got the math for Oh, really? Good God. Okay. Yeah, I um, know, right? <laughs> yeah. When when I get this thing done and finished and ready for, for you know publication, I will let everybody know what the pen name is and what the name of the story is, and everybody can go read it. Okay? And I will be bragging about it and telling everybody, so you will not miss it. I promise. Woo-hoo! You guys have an excellent night. Lady Holder, thank you for joining me. I'll see you guys Always. in the chat room, on my site, Live Journal, Facebook, and I'll probably be online next week. Shut up and sit down. vehicles to sell, 500 ways to save, one month only at Bill Penny Toyota during Mega Memorial Month, now through May 31st. That means mega deals on your favorite Toyota models from Alabama's number one volume Toyota dealer. And don't forget, every new vehicle comes with our 10-year unlimited warranty. Plus, enjoy the rest of our awesome Penny perks. Visit BillPennyToyota.com during Mega Memorial Month. Number one based on 2018 total new Toyota retail sales in Alabama for Southeast Toyota distributors. Warranty valid through 10-year ownership on new vehicles only. See dealer for details. Can't wait for summer? Old Navy's huge summer sale starts now. All jeans, all tees, all dresses, and all shorts are on sale up to 50% off. Jeans start at $15 for adults, $10 for kids. Shorts from $12 for adults, $7 for kids. Buy online and pick up in-store for free today. All jeans, tees, dresses, and shorts are on sale up to 50% off. Now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 5-6 to 5-12. Excludes in-store clearance. Active, licensed, men's packaged, and flag tees. 